0: of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the Century of Lies. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this edition of Century of Lies. I'm glad you could be with us. Today, we're kind of shifting things around between this program and the Cultural Baggage Show. Today, you're going to hear from a couple of the Drug Truth Network reporters, including Doug McVeigh with the Drug War Facts, Glenn Greenway with the Poppygate, and, of course, our LEAP spokesman, the man with 32 years' experience working for the federal government in drug interdiction, Mr. Terry Nelson. But first up, in a continuance of my efforts to provide exposure to the users of sacramental marijuana, we're going to hear from the island of Hawaii and the head of the THC Ministries, Reverend Roger Christie. Just uh, tell us about Roger Christie and the work you do. Well,
1: aloha from the big island of Hawaii. My name is Roger Christie, and I founded the Hawaii Cannabis THC Ministry six years ago, uh, this coming September. My headquarters is in Hilo, Hawaii. We have a website uh, that's headquartered here and uh, and a really nice active one also in Amsterdam. Uh, I was trained as a minister for about 10 years in metaphysics. I studied metaphysics and religious science. and I had a very uh, natural evolution in my education as an activist to gravitate uh, towards the spiritual, religious, constitutional use of cannabis. And uh, soon after I was ordained as a minister, excuse me, in what was called the is called the Religion of Jesus Church here in the year 2000, I uh, applied to the state of Hawaii for a license to marry people. And uh, on my application, I put under my denomination or sect very specifically, cannabis sacrament. And the state of Hawaii questioned me on that, and they approved me on that. So they. They have, in effect, licensed me specifically to marry people as a cannabis sacrament minister. They have recognized my particular uh, denomination. So that's a beautiful thing. I feel like I can put an unlimited amount of people under the protection and auspices of my ministry and my ministry license because state licenses are respected (laughs) through a process that's called reciprocity all over the USA. So we've had, had quite a bit of success with, the, uh, with defending ourselves as the cannabis culture using
0: the Constitution. And, well, uh, Roger, uh, you have, in essence, uh, gone through legitimate channels. You are, as you say, a legitimate minister right? uh, for uh, the cannabis plant in particular. And l- let's talk about that. The authority to speak of the nurturing, uh, healing plant, cannabis, dates back thousands of years, does it not, to the C- Old cer- Testament? Certainly, and and way beyond that.
1: Um, the uh, you know we found that uh, there, and it's easy now with computers to Google search, and uh, go to Aravid. Uh, websites and, and others that will show that the, the history of cannabis use uh, you know, predates the Bible by uh, thousands of years. And uh, the, uh, the Hindus certainly have a great uh, and long history, probably 3,500 years of continuous written history about cannabis use as a sacrament. Uh, Moses came along about 3,300 years ago, and he made holy anointing oil with uh, cannabis or cannabis as they called it. And that's written in the Old Testament and was mistranslated in English, but nevertheless it's, it's quite easy to, to, to verify uh, from authoritative sources that that, that that is in fact accurate and correct to use cannabis in the recipe for the most holy oil of, the, of Moses and the christening oil of Jesus. In Egypt cannabis use was widespread uh, before the Bible and it's, it's just a very natural thing to. Think about uh, ancient people sitting around a campfire and somebody throws a cannabis branch on there and uh, it smokes and burns and, uh, and people get high and feel good and talk and they start uh, use, stripping the, the fibers off the plant and weaving while they're talking story. It's real easy to picture that for me. But, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to uh, to follow the, the course of history and follow the trail. It's kind of like Raiders of the Lost Ark to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just stoked to find the treasures that we do.
0: And, and that is the point. The treasures are uh, handy. They're available if uh, anyone wants to investigate uh, uh, the potential. The, the 20,000, I've heard, uses of the hemp plant for industry, and it's up to us. To stand for the truth, is it not? There's a lot of propaganda involved, uh, not just against the cannabis plant, but against those who would speak so positively of its uses.
1: You know, uh, a point well taken. Uh, I, I appreciate your point of view, Dean. And you know that that the tens and twenty thousand uses, I believe, was uh, was guesstimated before modern technology. I mean, that was uh, those those uses are. You know, ready, ready to happen, and then add modern technology and manufacturing processes onto it. the The cannabis hemp plant is an is an industrial feedstock of immense proportions, and uh, yeah, it's an absolute beautiful thing to stand for. I got into the activism um, side of it here in Hawaii 20 years ago this year, because it was it was a human rights and civil rights uh, matter. As soon as I Arrived on the island. It was about 30 days later. I was brand new here, and um, noticing in the newspaper that the the state was going to start spray poisoning the marijuana gardens, the cannabis gardens, instead of cutting them by hand like they had been doing for a decade or more. And uh, I brought seeds with me to grow cannabis here when I moved from the mainland. So that was disheartening and challenging to hear and i noticed that there wasn't any opposition to it there was no public opposition to it and uh, so i started speaking out at uh, public hearings even though i was fresh off the boat and a new face in town and uh, it was just the right thing to do i mean how tragic to not only cut down a cannabis plant and waste it but to spray poison the ground that it's grown on that's <laughs> that's, that's so wrong headed i hardly know where to begin with it and uh, so that's where my activism began, and then within about 30 or 60 days of that, I found out about the Jack Harrow work, and through his first new, uh, I believe it was like a newspaper format, I believe it cost me a dollar, and it opened my eyes just to, uh, to all the, the many potentials of the cannabis plant, and my activism was born 20 years ago here.
0: Well, what you spoke of, the, uh, the spraying. Of the uh, marijuana crops on the mountainside, uh, it's kind of reminiscent of what we've done in Colombia for the last um, five years or so, uh, with great uh, endeavor. Uh, And yet we find that uh, marijuana—excuse me—we find that uh, the coca plant is doing better than ever, and that they have not diminished the supply, and uh, uh, the demand remains strong. Uh, Prohibition
1: is a very odd concept to free-thinking people. You know, it really is. I I really don't want to be told no or to be to keep away from something by people that don't have a, a sincere interest in my well-being. And uh, you know, if I'm told no to something that I am curious about, I might you know dig a tunnel to it. <laughs> you know, I'll put extra effort into it. It becomes the forbidden fruit, and then when we find out that it's it's pleasant and, and deeply enjoyable and opens our eyes to new thoughts and feelings and emotions and self discovery. And, and it helps to, as a friend of mine says, cannabis is a healer and a revealer. And uh, in a, a very natural way, to have a couple of puffs of a, of a flowering plant and to, to get such a state of mind is an absolutely beautiful gift. And, and uh, I'll just be promoting
0: that my entire time on planet Earth I, I imagine well you, you bring up a thought that uh, you know I'm for legalizing all drugs controlling it uh, getting rid of our children's easy access but but the point is like when they sprayed those plants on the mountainside what they did was uh, turn people further into the black market and uh, more likely to encounter those selling harder drugs like uh, meth or uh, or heroin, perhaps. Uh, I think with every step we take in this drug war, we get further away from logic and uh, ability to really control things.
1: Yeah, there, I saw an equation somebody wrote one time uh, years ago. Uh, somebody in the harm reduction movement, and it said, "the the harder the prohibition equals the harder the drugs." Yeah, and, and I found that to be true. I, it was apparently true in alcohol prohibition. The more they took away the uh, alcohol, the hard, you know, people made bathtub gin that became poisonous and, and it wasn't regulated and did a lot of damage. And in uh, marijuana eradication and marijuana prohibition, uh, the harder they push, the harder the drugs as substitutes uh, come into play. So, yeah, it's, it's a, a grandly failed or terribly failed social policy. And unless a person is benefiting from it, I mean, we think it's it's illogical and wrongheaded and just uh, the bad behavior and policy on every angle. But imagine somebody that's in law enforcement, or maybe somebody that sells the drug test kits to the government—they might absolutely love prohibition. Or the private prison industry—you uh, know—they might absolutely love it because it's filling up their beds and they're making uh, you know big fat salary and and uh, a 401k plan and health benefits so they're it's wrong-headed unless you're making money from it and, and even then it's it's a wrong-headed policy obviously because it ensnares your neighbors and your own kids and um uh, you know i've got a book here uh, dean in front of me it's called the great thoughts and uh compiled by an author george seldes and uh Prohibition isn't in this book. The word prohibition is not one of the great thoughts of all time. You know, It's just the opposite, one of the worst thoughts of all time, especially when you tell that to people that are raised on a diet of, uh, of freedom and liberty and, and all these uh, you know school classes and, and book reports about uh, fighting for freedom and living in a country where liberty is valued as the, one of the highest principles. To tell me I can't have something that I know is good for me, you know, just sets up an adversarial position, and I'm happy to be in it. I'm happy to be in it. If, if, if you know, if this is the situation on planet Earth where um, my government that I'm a part of is going to deny me and everybody that I know or anybody that I know access to this health giving uh, natural remedy and spiritual sacrament and industrial feedstock, then I'm going to work. And uh, and I have I've been blessed to evolve to this state where I have now a a public cannabis sacrament ministry. We have a banner, a three by eight foot banner, on the busiest intersection on the Big Island, right here in downtown Hilo. I have a lovely office right on the ocean front, on the second floor of the Moses Building. If you can believe that, God's got a great sense of humor sometimes. So yeah, we've got uh, I've evolved. And taking this as, uh, like I do with many troubles, I've learned to bless my troubles and find the good in it. And uh, even though I, I work very hard to end prohibition, I do find some personal growth, much personal growth, uh, as a matter of fact, from the way that I deal with it.
0: Well, you, we are speaking with Roger Christie. He's a cannabis sacrament minister and counselor, as he says, based in Hilo, Hawaii. Uh, Roger. Over the last few years, there have been rulings coming out of Guam in regards to uh, marijuana, I think mm-hmm. in the Ninth Circuit uh, realm. There have been uh, rulings back in the 60s uh, that uh, legitimized the uh, uh, sacramental use of peyote by the uh, Native Americans. And just recently, there was a uh, Supreme Court ruling on the ayahuasca tea, which uh, allows the uh, that, I think, Brazilian church to make use of their sacrament. There is, uh, of late, though, a lot of uh, doubt uh, on the, uh, the attitude and, and uh, direction of the Supreme Court. But what's your thought, sir? Do we not have this right? Should we not demand uh, the uh, sacramental use of marijuana be recognized by the U.S. government?
1: Oh, thanks for that good question, Dean. We absolutely have the right. The right is an inheritance. We've inherited this, the right I mean here we are, are on planet Earth at this point in time and somehow we're here and so are all the other plants and animals and blessings of this planet and we get to choose. And In the, in the, the most pure sense of, of, a, uh, of an aware human being you get to look around and see what's good for you and evolve into it as we learn from wise people and as we have a journey of self-discovery about what's good for us, or what pleases us, and what makes us smile, what makes us healthier—it's a great experiment here, and uh, we're all tinkering with it, you know, as we go along and, and uh, passing along the good news. But I call uh, cannabis uh, an inheritance of creation, and it's it's much different than um, medical marijuana in that, even though we're de- we're talking about the very same plant. How I see medical marijuana as is a temporary legal privilege. Here in Hawaii, people have to renew their medical marijuana cards every every year. And and we're blessed to have that program. I mean I worked very hard for it to come into place and it's a very decent program. However, it's a temporary legal privilege. Whereas religious use is constitutional and it's a right. That a person has for life. There is nobody to go to for permission. There's no law to pass. There's no lobbyist to convince. Um, It's in there. And every state constitution guarantees, and I use the word, guarantees religious freedom. And you get not only to believe what you want, that's a given, but you get to practice your beliefs and exercise your religion, and that's what we do by growing cannabis plants and uh, and preparing it in such a way that it becomes uh, a tincture, or a tea, or a poultice, or a whole in uh, the sacramental use the holy anointing oil, or as a brownie in edibles, uh, however a person chooses to use it. It's a right, but medical marijuana is a temporary legal privilege. So. I recommend to all medical patients that you investigate the religious use, the spiritual, constitutional use of cannabis for yourself, and add it, add it to you know your toolbox of documents and legitimacy, so that hopefully when you get well, which will be immediately because everybody really wants to be healthy today, you know, have a miracle happen. But the way it's set up now with medical marijuana, it especially here, where people have to re-up every year, what's their prayer next year? Do they still want to be sick so they get the medical marijuana card? Or do they want to have an instant healing and be 100% healthy so they don't qualify? Well, when, When the medical marijuana law passed in Hawaii six years ago, I realized I was not a patient, and I didn't want to be a patient. And yes, I wanted a cannabis garden, and yes, I wanted to interact with cannabis in my life, to whatever degree I felt like. And I realized that it's a right, and that's a great big difference from a temporary legal privilege. Plus, I noticed, if I might, when I talk about medical marijuana, what I'm in doing, in my mind anyway, is entering the realm of pharmaceuticals and corporations and patents, you know, things like that, trademarks and all that. <clears throat> when I talk about spiritual sacramental use, there is no such opposition. So it's it's a beautiful thing to embrace this uh, constitutional uh, value of religious freedom. It, it's, as, it's as unique as you are. Uh,
0: once again, we're speaking with Roger Christie of the Hawaii Cannabis Ministry. Roger, if folks want to learn more about uh, your ministry and uh, perhaps how they might... Uh, become members of of your church. Uh, Please tell them what they can do on the web.
1: Great. Well, it's easy to go online and to go to thc-ministry.org. We've got a very complete website and uh, it's a beautiful step-by-step process where people can join for free and uh, register with us for free. And then they can get ordained. We recommend people get ordained with the Universal Life Church, um, which is ULC.org, and get a, a generic ordainment as part of the process of building a legitimate defense. It's like a construction job, Dean, and it's almost like making plywood. It's one layer upon another layer upon another layer to make it extra strong because the prohibition is, is so extreme and, uh, and so dangerous and has pitfalls for people that I think it's incumbent upon myself to, to find a way. I had to find a way for cannabis freedom, and I was hungry for it for 30 years, and I finally found it. And I recommend these simple steps to other people. They can join the ministry, as I say, get ordained. And then we have what I call cannabis sanctuary kits, and our cannabis sanctuary kits are, are document packages that include self-laminating ID cards, sanctuary signs for your home and greenhouse, plastic nursery tags to clip on your growing cannabis plants, stash tags to put you know in a stash bag uh, with, uh, with sacrament, so that every step along the way that your, your body, your garden, your home, your entire life is protected by the First Amendment. It's, it's fairly new to the consciousness of America. There really isn't and an yet a, uh, a lot of information about it, and I, I really thank you for, for asking the questions uh, on this radio show and, uh, and getting the word out uh, even farther, because everybody qualifies. It, I, I'll tell you what. I take that back. Here's the qualifier. You need to be a sincere, spiritual user of cannabis. That's the fundamental qualifier for a religious defense to prosecution for cannabis. You need to be a sincere user. If you are that, then I can add the legitimacy by helping people get ordained and putting people under the protection of my state license. And uh, It's a beautiful thing.
0: It really is. You know, in the first page of the Bible, it talks about God creating the herbs of the field, seeing that they were good and for the benefit of mankind, and yet millions of people around the world use this product for health and sacramental reasons, and yet remain unwilling to share their knowledge of the benefit derived from the use of that herb. When will we dare to stand for truth? That's the real question. Well, next up, we'll hear from three Drug Truth Network reporters from around America who dare to stand for the truth. Let's start with uh, Terry Nelson. He's spent 32 years as a law enforcement official in Customs Border Agency Air Interdiction, retired as a G14, the equivalent of a bird colonel. He's now a member of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Mr. Terry Nelson.
2: Today I'm going to share with you a possible solution to how on how to reduce the murder of police officers. In researching FBI information of the number of police officers killed each year, I found that we have lost approximately 700 officers in the past 10 years and 256, or approximately 36% of them, were killed by people with past drug convictions. Last year alone, half of the officers murdered were by drug law offenders. As a spokesman for LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, and a retired law enforcement officer, I am for the total legalization of drugs LEAP's position is that the current prohibition policy in place for more than 30 years has not worked, and the United States needs to change that failed policy and reduce the number of deaths directly related to it. The officers murdered by drug dealers did not have to die, and the thousands of other deaths related to the prohibition of drugs did not have to happen. By legalizing drugs, regulating purity and potency, licensing the sale, taxing the proceeds, and controlling the age of the person purchasing the drugs, we can greatly reduce the criminal gangs and their influence on our children. The FBI's latest assessment of gangs is that the pervasiveness of gangs throughout our society is undeniable. They are more sophisticated and flagrant in their use of violence and intimidation tactics, and they bring drugs, weapons, and criminal activity with them. And unlike licensed pharmacies, they will sell to anyone, anytime, anywhere, without regard to that person's safety or well-being. Their only motive is money and power. So the logical thing to do is to sever the financial chain that feeds this activity, legalize drugs, and remove their inflated value, thus eliminating the criminals from the distribution chain. It is estimated that 80% of the crime associated with drug prohibition occurs within the distribution network. Educate and inform yourself. You will find alternatives exist. Ask tough questions of elected officials. It is time for a change. The system is broken. Let's find a solution for our future. This is Terry Nelson on behalf of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, at www.leap.cc, signing off.
0: I want to thank Terry for that report. And, you know, I'm quite proud that I am now an official spokesman for LEAP as well. There are more than 125 of us, uh, mostly in the U.S., but uh, worldwide, willing to come speak to your organization. Uh, Give us a shout, uh, www.leap.cc. Next up, we hear from uh, the Pittsburgh area, our good friend, a longtime Drug Truth Network reporter who really delves into the situation in Afghanistan, Mr. Glenn Greenway. Poppygate, bizarre news about the U.S. policy on controlling heroin, featuring Glenn Greenway.
3: Afghanistan's drug lords have never had a summer living this easy their illicit businesses jumping, and their profits sky high. Only four-plus years since the end of the historically effective Taliban prohibition, the Texas-sized country liberated by American forces in 2001 has become the source of 92% of the world's black market heroin. The U.S. and its allies rely upon Afghan drug lords to provide a semblance of order. Under Western occupation, the opium harvest and heroin manufacture have become the country's primary source of wealth, providing millions of jobs in an otherwise destitute economy. The Financial Times of London quotes a top Western counter-narcotics official as saying that this year's $1 billion eradication effort has been an absolute disaster. Afghan farmers, too poor to buy protection from corrupt eradicators, have been driven into the arms of the resurgent Taliban. Violence has risen to the highest level since 2001. Poppy cultivation in some regions has reportedly doubled over last year, and the total 2006 harvest is expected to break all previous records. On February 12, 2002, President Bush spoke from the East Room of the White House and told America that his administration was, quote, putting the fight against drugs in the center of our national agenda, end quote. He didn't mention that his national agenda would also include turning Afghanistan into the world's preeminent heroin mill, nor Uncle Sam's new role as international narco-tycoon deluxe. This is Gwen Greenway reporting for the Drug Truth
0: Network. If the cultural baggage show airs at a widely divergent time than the Century of Lies show does in your market, perhaps you've not heard the following Drug Truth Network reporter. He's the editor of what I consider to be the best compilation of facts about prohibition anywhere, and that's Drug War Facts, and I'm speaking of Mr. Doug McVeigh.
4: More pills to cure your ills. According to news reports this week, scientists claim to be close to finding a drug which could cure nicotine addiction. According to the New York Times, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has put an anti-tobacco vaccine on the fast track for approval. Federal researchers say that the drug generates antibodies which grab nicotine molecules and stop them from reaching the brain. In theory, the result of this is that the nicotine buzz would be either diminished or eliminated entirely. The idea is that the lack of a buzz would convince smokers who develop tolerance to the drug effect of nicotine very quickly and after a short time using, no longer notice the nicotine buzz, to quit. In a similar vein, the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse and the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism are reported to be researching or funding research on more than 200 addiction medications. The quest for a magic pill is nothing new. The question is raised, however, is addiction purely a physical disorder? Or is there, as most experts in the field argue, an emotional and sociological element as well? If addiction is more than a mere neurological disorder, these so-called cures will be less than useful at best and could potentially be dangerous. There is no question, however, that whoever is first to market with a drug claiming to cure addiction will make a fortune. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh, editor of drugwarfacts.org.
0: There is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data involved in this drug war. Please visit our website, endprohibition.org. Prohibido es y For the Drug Truth Network, this is Dean Becker asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition. The Century of Lies. The show produced at the Pacifica Studios of KPFT, Houston.